Okay, okay it is 7 o'clock, so let's go ahead and uh, pull this together, and we'll go ahead and get a uh, start on the evening, take our quiz while the rest of the folk uh, line up outside. Okay, so uh, Ken, would you open us? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity that you give us to, uh, to gather together and learn more about you and how we might better serve you. We thank you for everybody here tonight, Lord, that uh, our minds would be open and our hearts receptive to what you would have us learn tonight about you, Lord. Lord, we just pray that uh, um, as we go forth that uh, uh, we do the things that you would have us do to glorify you. For we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here's the uh, quiz. Okay, well, let's go ahead and go over this, and uh, we'll see what uh, what we learned last week. Number one, which of the following reflects the primary biblical idea of a prophet? B. 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 So he's a spokesman for God in this case. Oh, he's a pro- he's a divine prophet. Uh, sometimes they do predict the future, uh, but that's not something that's necessary to prophecy. It's just someone who's speaking directly for God. Sometimes colloquially we talk about someone preaching prophetically when we mean that he's preaching with great power, but that's that's not a biblical definition of prophecy. <laughs> And then D is is what we uh, suggested was the incorrect understanding that had been uh, proposed by Wayne Grudem about New Testament prophecy, and we suggested there's really no biblical evidence that the definition of prophecy changes from the Old Testament to the New, which leaves us then with B is the correct answer. Okay. A true prophet never makes a mistake when he or she prophesies. True. True. Okay. If, if someone does make a mistake, that prophet has not the light of day and is supposed to be taken out and stoned. So, uh, number three. The Bible speaks regularly of a homiletical anointing, whereby the Spirit helps preachers to say more than they know or to speak more effectively than they ordinarily are able. False. False. Uh, sometimes we do have, well, we'll talk a little bit about the idea of a prophetic uh, anointing tonight, even with the uh, with the idea of revelation. Uh, so the Holy Spirit comes upon people to, so as to prophesy. Uh, but uh, the idea of a preacher having this skill in the present day is not something that is at least discussed in Scripture. Finally, John 14 and 15 teach that the Spirit will miraculously remind Christians of pertinent Bible verses when they're sharing the gospel. False. 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 What does it mean? Apostle. Remember okay. what they did. Right, yes. In the context, what it was, because you have been with me from the beginning, uh, you will remember my words and testify later. And the idea here is he's pre-authenticating their uh, their. Their, their scripture writings, uh, which is why uh, when we talk about canonicity, usually the first item on the list to know whether a book is is to be included in the biblical in the, in the new in the Christian canon is whether it's written by an apostle 
or a close associate of apostles, someone who had been with Jesus uh, from the beginning of his ministry and had seen the resurrected Christ, etc. Okay? Well, that makes sense? Follow-up questions with that? Okay. Well, let's go on here then in our notes. I believe we're on page 32, we're correct. We talked here about the idea of prophecy. Under the large heading of Revelation, the Holy Spirit and Revelation, we talked about prophecy. Uh, we talked about what God does specifically with New Testament prophets and apostles. And let her see then, still under this idea of Revelation, because I think this is the primary function of the Holy Spirit relative to Christ, is to be a mediator of revelation through Jesus Christ. I think this will emerge here tonight. Then we'll talk ever so briefly about the Spirit's role in inspiration. I I only give it a a short treatment here because we have a longer treatment in Systematic 1 when we talk about the doctrine of Scripture. But we'll at least mention it and uh, hit some of the key texts. But the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. What was the Holy Spirit doing uh, when Jesus Christ came? Did he... How, how is it that the Holy Spirit assisted him? Well, we say here that Jesus Christ stands as the culmination of divine revelation, and in all other areas we find that the Spirit is the mediator of revelation. So it stands to reason that the Holy Spirit would somehow be involved in the ministry of Christ. So God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through his Son. So Christ's divine nature, his deity, really doesn't need any assistance from the Holy Spirit to do anything, but uh, Christ's human activities were under the constant supervision of the Holy Spirit uh, throughout his ministry. And and in your textbook, actually this is not your textbook, it's the textbook I used for... uh, for a Bible Institute at the uh, at, uh, at, at Inner City uh, has a very good section here on on this on this work of the Holy Spirit. Starts out we find with the Holy Spirit uh, conceiving Jesus Christ in the womb of his mother Mary. We find here in Luke one that the Holy Spirit, this is the angel speaking to. Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child within you shall be called the Son of God. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is somehow responsible you know, for that uh, for that Y chromosome, right? Uh, we're not sure exactly, uh, but obviously there's a miracle involved in a virgin conception, and uh, the Holy Spirit, we are, we discover here, is the source of that of that uh, of that power that allows Mary to conceive Jesus Christ without a human father. And we say here, the personhood of Jesus Christ didn't derive from his mother; otherwise, Christ would have inherited her sin nature. That's an extra A in there; it shouldn't be there. So the Holy Spirit wrought the conception of Christ's human nature in the womb of Mary in such a way that the personhood of Jesus, which is preexistent, exists for all eternity in heaven, can be imported onto what we sometimes think of as an impersonal body, 
uh, that was carried in Mary's womb. It was impersonal until uh, the pre-existent personhood of Jesus Christ was attached to it. Elsewhere, this function is ascribed to the Father and to Christ himself, so it is a Trinitarian work, uh, but the Holy Spirit here is uh, discussed as the primary agent of the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. So he is the one who, in some sense, uh, effects or produces this theanthropic person, uh, this theanthropic being, which is which is uh, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is also involved in the ministry of Christ as well, so jump forward, fast forward a little bit. The extent of the Holy Spirit's work in Christ's ministry depends largely on one's understanding of the kenosis of Christ. Of course, in Philippians 2, we find described here that how Christ was humiliated uh, when he came to earth, not necessarily by just simply becoming a human, uh, but the uh, the but the the humiliation, the scorn, uh, the weakness, the uh, the the death uh, that he experienced in his humanity. Now, some people take the kenosis as the surrender of Christ's attributes, but that would render him less than God. Um, and if, if if this were the case, then the Spirit would become extremely instrumental in determining what powers Jesus had. Uh, but as we uh, mentioned above, above earlier last week, we recognize the kenosis more generally as the humbling of Christ to the indignities that were attending his existence as a human. If this is the case, and I follow that understanding, Christ retained full use of his attributes as God, uh, but shared his supernatural powers with his human nature only sparingly. So there are occasions where Jesus says that in his human mind he doesn't know, for instance, the day or the time of the second coming. Um, he, uh, he exhibits some ignorance, uh, incidental ignorance here and there as we work our way through the gospel accounts, and it's uh, largely because of this. However, even with this second understanding, the other members of the Trinity still play a role in Christ's ministry. Firstly, I say the whole Trinity is active in the ministry of Christ. John 8 says this, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. There really is a, a singular divine intention. It's not as though Jesus has a, a has an independent set of intentions uh, that could go awry and, and not match those of his Father. And so he says here, I do nothing of my own initiative. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Acts 1, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, gave orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So uh, the Holy Spirit apparently is attended in some sense uh, when Jesus speaks authoritatively in this way. Hebrews 9 says, Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. So somehow the Holy Spirit was active in assisting, coming alongside uh, Jesus Christ as he went to the cross. Uh, we probably could add here, maybe I have it later, he, he, I do, he raised him from the dead as well. 
We also find that the Holy Spirit indwelt Christ, and this is a bit of a uh, a bit of an interesting discussion. We actually haven't talked about indwelling yet, uh, the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. But let's uh, just uh, sort of start out by saying that the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is not a locative kind of a thing. It's not that the Holy Spirit somehow isn't inside of you and now he is inside of you. The Holy Spirit, by his very nature, is on that present. And so he's as much in this lectern as he is in any one of us in, 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 in that sense. Nonetheless, the Holy Spirit does intersect with the mind of the believer, the mind, the heart, the affections, the will of the believer, so as to prompt that individual uh, toward, toward certain course of action, towards, uh, towards obedience specifically. So the Holy Spirit is, in some sense, doing the same thing with Christ. Okay, So it's a functional phenomenon, something that the Holy Spirit is doing, not somewhere that the Holy Spirit was being. So indwelling has to do with the articulation of the mind of the Spirit with the mind of man. And John 3, 34 says, He whom God has sent speaks the truth words of God because he gives the Spirit without measure. Interesting phrase there. The, he gives the Spirit without measure. Some of your translations say without limit. I kind of like the word measure because it matches another word uh, used elsewhere in the uh, New Testament here. But let me see if we can't explain perhaps What's going on here? It's difficult to know what contrast is being made here. It could mean that the Holy Spirit grant, grants Christ unlimited power and unlimited revelation, which is a contrast then to Old Testament prophets and kings who received limited revelation and power. The Holy Spirit would come and then he would go, and so there would be you know, limited, limited, uh, you know, bursts of Holy Spirit activity. Perhaps this is a, an enduring kind of activity that the Spirit is engaged with with Jesus Christ. It also could reflect a contrast of the Spirit's comprehensive work in Christ, this without measure, and uh, the contrast would be the limited gifting of New Testament saints. And so, for instance, we find in both Ephesians and Romans that the Holy Spirit gives to believers gifts according to the measure of the Spirit. Okay, same word. And so the implication perhaps is that the Holy Spirit gives to each of us some gift, some ability, some uh, some some uh, avenue of service within the local church and each one of us puts our piece together with the rest, and we have a functioning body. Uh, that perhaps what we have here instead is that the Holy Spirit gifts the Holy the, Jesus Christ, as it were, uh, with all of the gifts that uh, might be seen in the life of the church. Or it could mean simply that the Holy Spirit attended Jesus without any resistance, so Jesus would not resist him. Uh, as uh, when he, uh, uh, as as is, would be the case when the Holy Spirit indwells believers, there's resistance that he meets in each one of us because of the uh, lingering effects of sin, uh, indwelling sin that uh, remain within us. 
Um, and so perhaps that's what is meant. It's hard to know exactly what is meant here by this phrase, that he gives the Spirit to Christ without measure. Uh, could be any one of these things, perhaps all of them. Uh, in any event, it seems clear that Christ has the unfettered access to the power of the Spirit at his immediate disposal at all times. So uh, there's there's some sense in which Jesus Christ has greater access or greater power available to him as second person of the Trinity, uh, embodied and, and, and clothed in human flesh than the rest of us do as we walk about our daily lives uh, trying to live for Jesus Christ. Okay, I don't know if I can do better than that. I just sort of gave you some options here. Uh, but Holy Spirit is also directing Christ's activity. We find, for instance, in Matthew 4, 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How exactly that occurs, I'm not sure. The Holy Spirit leads him there. Letter D here, the Holy Spirit anointed Christ at his baptism. I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about that uh, when we get into the discussion of the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, But we find this anointing ministry of the Holy Spirit that comes uh, firstly to Moses and then goes to Joshua and then is shared with the, with the elders, uh, goes, it, it comes to several of the judges, comes to Saul, leaves Saul, comes to David, is extended then to Solomon and pr- presumably then all of the Judahite kings culminating in the last and greatest of the Judahite kings, which is Jesus Christ. So I think what we have here in the baptism of Jesus Christ is the bestowal of this, if I can put it, the right to rule. It's an acknowledgement here of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is my son. Uh, Today I have begotten him, is the the idea here. Uh, He has has been, uh, he has been, he has been, uh, he he has been uh, demonstrated to be uh, the divine appointee uh, to the throne. The Holy Spirit also empowered the proclamation and prophetic utterances of Christ. Luke 4 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Matthew 12, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. These are prophetic uh, promises, statements made earlier in the Old Testament and they're applied here to Jesus Christ. So that Jesus then has, has the function of a prophet as well as king and savior. So this prophetic empowerment was probably part of the theocratic anointing and thus has really no con- connection with contemporary preaching, don't uh, derive from this the idea that the Holy Spirit can come upon any one of us uh, when we preach so as to uh, give us special words uh, that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to come up with on our own. Okay. We find here letter F, rather an interesting Discussion here. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit comes under this. 
Uh, we find that the Holy Spirit enabled Christ's performance of miracles. Perhaps a little background is necessary for this discussion of Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is sort of a, the hinge point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Up till this point, he has been routinely doing miracles, demonstrating to his people that, in fact, he was the Messiah, and doing things that were prophesied of the Messiah. And uh, they should have looked at what he was doing and said, Aha! I, I got it. This is the Messiah. I figured it out. But as he works through the first year, year and a half of his ministry, that doesn't seem to be the response. Few people get it, uh, but not very many. And in fact, the leaders of the Jewish community don't get it, or refuse to acknowledge it, perhaps, is a better way of thinking of it. And so we have this climax here that's reached in Matthew chapter 12. He heals, casts out a demon and heals a man. And he's confronted by the religious leaders of the day. And, uh, and uh, you know, they, they you know, confront him, say he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. Um, he has no authorization to do this. And uh, Jesus says, so how do you... How do you think I'm doing these miracles? Well, you're doing these miracles, they answer, in the power of Beelzebub, power of Satan, effectively. And this this prompts a response here in Matthew 12, 28, that says something about what he's doing. Okay? We'll start really back in 25. Jesus knows their thoughts. You know, they, they, you know, the people were thinking it's the son of David. And so there's, there's this growing sense that maybe this is the Messiah, but the leaders of Israel want to sort of squash this idea because it would be, would really result in the loss of all their power. So they spread this idea that it's only by Beelzebub that he, this fellow drives out demons. And then Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? So, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, prince of the demons, by whom then your people drive them out? So they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons... By the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, and so, and so, so the argument here is, okay, you're saying that I am casting out demons in the power of the prince of the demons. Now, does that make any sense? Is his argument. Why would a kingdom be divided against itself? Why would I use the power of the prince of the demons to drive out demons? That's nonsensical. Makes no sense. And, and he says, there's, a, there's another option here. <laughs> a much better option that you ought to consider, and that is that I'm not doing these things in the power of the prince of the demons. I'm doing these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that should have been their response. And then he goes on, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house, carry off his possessions, till he, unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob the house. 
He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The implication here is that you are in jeopardy of committing that sin. Or perhaps you could say they're in the process of committing this sin. They are looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in demonstrating, corroborating that this, in fact, was the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit by saying, this man does these things in the power of Beelzebub, that won't be forgiven. Okay? And so this is, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a sin that cannot be pardoned. In fact, uh, I mean, let me just take you to another text where I think of this. The same idea is is communicated. Go to, go to Hebrews six four to six. One of the a, uh, in the book of Hebrews, of course, there's these warning passages that occur. Uh, of course, warning whom Hebrews Jews that if they embrace the Messiah and then turn away, then they're in big trouble. Okay, so here it is, probably the most uh, the most well-known of these warnings is, takes place here in Hebrews 6, 4-6. It is impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and had shared in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, it is impossible that they should be brought again to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. I think we have the same sin here, right? There's the only two occasions in the scripture where we find a sin like this described here that cannot be forgiven. Okay. And it's so, so who is, who, who is uh, Hebrews 6 directed to? Jews. Israelites, many of whom had seen the ministry of Jesus Christ while he was on earth, and so they tasted of the Holy Spirit, and they saw the powers of the coming age. And if these Jews, even later on, should look at these things and say, no, 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 it's, it's not what it seems to be, uh, I I saw what the Holy Spirit did and the powers, the miracles that were taking place. But no, I'm 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 turning my back on that. The response is the same. The result is the same. They can't. They, they, there is no there is no forgiveness for sin for that. And so I think we have exactly the same uh, situation in Hebrews six as we do in Matthew twelve. This, so this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit probably cannot be committed today uh, because none of us can see uh, the uh, person of Christ in action, fulfilling these uh, prophecies and, and performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. But in that day, uh, these people could. And so the point here is that the Holy Spirit is particularly active in the ministry of Jesus Christ, revealing, divulging who he is. This person, this Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit gives him the ability to perform miracles of, of, of 
tremendous character. Uh, that could not be uh, uh, mistaken for anything other than a corroboration of the fact that he is the Messiah. Okay? Acts 10, I think, corroborates this as well. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power so that he went about doing good, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So the Holy Spirit is very active in the ministry of Christ and particularly in facilitating the miracles he did, he did, thus corroborating his identity as the Messiah. Okay? Yes? I have a question about a, a passage where Jesus is in a crowd and there is a, an unclean woman that is coming up and, mm-hmm. and wants to be healed. Yeah. And if she can only get close enough. And, and then the Bible says, and he felt the power go forth from him. Yeah. Can you explain what's going on there? Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It does. It does seem to be a rather unusual circumstance. Yeah. Um, uh, but the, you know, I, I, I'm disinclined to think that this was an involuntary action on Jesus' part. That you know, he's walking along. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he knew what was going on there, and. It is is in control of his own power, and so yes, he felt the woman touch him, and I would say he voluntarily and deliberately healed her. Because um, it just says the power came. It, it gives right. the impression that he didn't have control. Yeah, it does, it does sort of feel that way. Uh, I, I've not taken it that way because it just seems a little bit odd uh, that yeah. power could depart, and, and even even then, how, how does power depart from it? Omnipotent being, and, and it's not as though he has less power because. Of it. So it's it is it is an odd odd way of wording things, but I, I I don't know that we should you know build some sort of a theological point on on the wording. There. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Bill. I have a question. Yes. Ma'am. So then that would indicate that he actually knew who it was who touched him. Right. Yeah. I, I, I would understand that. So he was questioning that more for her sake than... Probably. I mean, she, she was trying to be covert. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. Didn't he voluntarily lay aside the use of his attributes at least at some point where maybe... Um, well... Maybe he just didn't know at the time uh, in that incident. But okay. Yeah, he still did even at using it. Yeah... Yeah, I mean, we want to be careful how we how we use that language. It's not as though he laid aside his attributes, or even the independent use of his attributes. I, I know that's language that's sometimes used because I, I don't I don't know that any one person of the Triune God ever uses his attributes independently of the other two. So, um, so yes, he 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 is humiliated, and in his theanthropic person. The divine part of him does not always communicate to the human part of him certain facts, knowledge, powers. Uh, I suppose that could be an explanation of what goes on, that in his humanity, just he's walking along, something just happened there. But I get it. I'm kind of disillusioned. to the will of the Spirit and the Father and then trying to be the... uh, the Adam-type person, you know. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I suppose that's a possibility out there. I'm just disinclined to think quite in those terms for... I think, 
I, I, I'm more inclined to think that this was sort of a teaching moment, kind of like when God comes to the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Yeah. Knowing where he was and, and, and such. So. But it is, a, it is a difficult passage. Yeah. Okay. The Holy Spirit is also involved in the sufferings of Christ, Hebrews 9 says. Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. So just as the Holy Spirit sustains Christ in his earthly ministry, so also the Spirit sustains him in his death. And then, attends the, the, uh, the, the humanity of Jesus, his, his body, prevents him from seeing decay, and is... Romans 8, 11 says here, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if he dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, the text doesn't precisely state that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus, but that's the implication. It does say that the Holy Spirit will raise believers and by implication suggests that the Holy Spirit raised Christ as well. So the Holy Spirit is uh, influential in reuniting the material and immaterial portions of Christ so that he's able to emerge from the grave when and as he did. Perhaps involved as well in the repair, perhaps, of the body of Christ and the glorification of his body so that he is not the shell, the emaciated shell of a man that must have been put into the grave. Uh, he's, he comes out a robust individual by the power of the Holy Spirit, apparently. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is quite active at every, every point of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I put this here under revelation because that seems to be the primary function of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Christ, to reveal in him who he is. The last thing we want to say about the, about the revealing work of the Holy Spirit is his work in the inspiration of Scripture. The Holy Spirit was responsible for the production of both Testaments, starting in the Old Testament. Now the Lord's God has sent me and his Spirit. This is what the Lord says. Acts 1.16, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. And then he quotes scripture. Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit said. And then he quotes Psalm 95. And so uh, the implication here is that the Holy Spirit is involved in the production of the Old Testament scriptures, even at points where he is not mentioned in the original. Holy Spirit, of course, was also responsible for the production of the New Testament and for the entire canon. There are some very key texts uh, that we can appeal to uh, that indicate that the Holy Spirit is involved. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, this is what we speak, speaking of the revelation process, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Holy Spirit so that we express spiritual truths in spiritual words. So the Holy Spirit is involved here in the production of the New Testament scriptures, what Paul is writing. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. 
Theopneustos, and I put that word in there so you can see there, the breathing of God. The neustos is the same word, pneuma, uh, from which we get the Holy Spirit. And so, undoubtedly, the Holy Spirit is involved in the inspiration process. Of course, we see this explicitly stated in 2 Peter 1. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, this word, Pharaoh, to be carried along, is the same word that would be used of uh, the winds carrying along a ship, the use of sails. It's used this way in the book of Acts on a couple of occasions here. And I think it's an apt metaphor here. How did the scriptures come to us? Well, they came to us through what are essentially passive vehicles. Uh, The boat is dead in the water unless you set the sails, and then they carry you along. The energy comes from the wind, not from anything in the boat. Of course, we obviously didn't have motors in those days. Okay. And so the, the, the metaphor is the same. How did, how did the scriptures come to us? Well, through these passive vehicles, these humans who were sitting there, the Holy Spirit came through them so that they wrote down the words of scripture. Okay, so he's responsible then for the production of the New Testament scriptures and the hold of the canon. Now, this process is not described with great precision. In the New Testament, we'd like to know a little bit more about exactly how this happens. Um, We can glean a few features, but uh, ultimately uh, we are unable to give a complete picture. Uh, There's a measure of human passivity in the process, as we've said. The inspired material does not originate with humans, but with God. So the message is divine. There's a measure of human activity, though, in the process. The human authors bring their literary, cultural, and social backgrounds into the writing process. and These clearly emerge to put individual human signatures on each piece of Scripture. It's not as though all the Scriptures read precisely the same, and you can't see a common hand uh, in all of the Scriptures. Uh, you, You see the hand of multiple writers. But there's an organic confluence of divine and human. It's not dictation. Instead, the Holy Spirit oversees the expression of these spiritual truths in the form of words, such that the very words of Scripture are breathed out by God. They are the words of God himself. And we spend a little bit one more time talking about the inspiration of Scripture in Systematic 1, uh, but uh, certainly welcome any questions you might have on that tap topic here before we move on. Yes, sir. Back when you talked about the theocratic anointing, yeah. you say that that each of the kings was anointed? Yeah, that's, that's still coming up. I, I, I'm i actually going to talk about the whole work of the Holy Spirit in Old Testament believers. That's, so uh, that's actually coming. Still had the same anointing? Yes. Yeah, we'll get to that. that, that that's coming. I, I, I actually have the, the major discussion is still ahead of us, uh, but because I was talking about the ministry of Christ, I sort of, that sort of uh, got in early. But that's actually coming here in a few minutes. We'll likely get there tonight. So we'll talk, if I, if I can punt, until yeah, we talk about they that. They weren't nice guys. No, a lot of them weren't. <laughs> Neither was Saul. Yeah, a lot of them were a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, I'll, 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 I'll put you off 
for a few minutes, maybe till next week, but uh, we'll, we will talk about that, yes. That was a question. So I was just thinking through this. It's a little bit speculative, I guess, but so, you know, how many letters must Paul have written? And, you know, for example, when he's writing Thessalonians or First Peter or whatever, you know, I, I always think I memorized that verse in grade school in the KJV, like, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that I mean, I, I don't know, but do you think it was something where he knew, like, as I'm writing this letter to the Corinthians or whoever, that this is... I think often that was the case. I don't know if that was always the case, but I would say often that was the case, uh, that they knew that they were speaking for God. <sighs> Certainly they knew when they were speaking in, in, gen- in a general sense for God. Yeah. So, for instance, if we were to find the letter of the Laodiceans... Uh, that, that's missing, or one of the missing letters to the Corinthians. I, I I wouldn't expect that there'd be any mistakes in it, not because it's inspired scripture, but because it's an apostolic writing, and because he's an apostle. He's he's he he is speaking and writing the words of God, whether those were intended for inscripturation or not. Uh, so did Paul know that the letter? The Colossians was inspired, and the one to the Laodiceans was not. I don't know. You know, Doc McKeon, my mentor, <laughs> said yes. They always knew. I'm not completely convinced that that's the case. And, and, and then, I, I, particularly when we think back to like, you know, Solomon writes. You know, we, we know he wrote 1,500 proverbs, yeah. but only about three or four hundred of them make it into the book of proverbs. So is he writing? Yeah, it's not inspired. Yeah, because the letters feel so personal. You know, they call out people by name. Right. It's I can't. I mean, obviously, in those letters, it wasn't like, oh shoot, I forgot to write that one thing down. I meant to communicate that to them. You know, because it was all scripture. So I just those, especially with the letters, it always makes me think of that with because of how personal they feel. You know, and I I would think he knew he was writing authoritatively as an apostle. Whether he knew which ones, of the, which of the books were were going to end up being canonical, I'm not completely convinced. I don't have a problem with that. Was the case? I'm just not sure that that's that's some sort of necessarily follows. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Other thoughts. Okay, let's move then into our next major section here in the notes, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And again, we're sort of narrowing down as we go. Um, and we're going to start with uh, the, the, the works of the Holy Spirit in the believer generally, but then also the works of the Holy Spirit specifically in the Old Testament and then specifically in the New Testament. So we'll uh, we'll 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 narrow in as we sort of uh, co- 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 uh, approach this topic. I want to start here with the idea of regeneration. Firstly, this is a work on behalf of all believers in every age. This is not something that's restricted, for instance, uh, to the <laughs> New Testament, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit in believers generally. So, what is regeneration? And there was a question about this a couple of weeks ago. Regeneration is God's decisive, effective termination of the spiritually dead person's resistance to God by imparting to him the new nature. So it's the impartation of a new nature. Uh, Until the point of regeneration, we were dead in our sins, we were incapable of pleasing God, 
uh, we cannot express faith. And so there is, there is this impossibility here. And so the background here is total depravity. The, the, the man without the spirit, the unregenerate person, the natural man, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot uh, respond to God in faith. These things are impossible to him. And I think we can, we can bear this out rather easily in a number of texts. So regeneration is the bestowal, the generation of spiritual life. It's not a process. It's an event. It's an act of springing to life, effected by the Holy Spirit. Uh, John 1, 12, 13 says, Those who believe do so because they have been born of God. Okay, so the reason that you believe, assuming that all of you have, the reason you did that was not because you were smarter than your neighbor or more clever, but rather because God regenerated you. You were born of God. John 3, 3 and 5, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Theologically, however, life is more than just an animating principle where we, you know, you know, stick a stick a, an electrical lead into somebody's arm and they start moving. It's it's more than that. It is actually then an impartation of all that is necessary to spiritual life. So when a person comes to life spiritually, the old nature is not animated so that it's enabled to perform spiritual functions. You know, you, you can take a dead mouse and put it on the lab table and put a you know, put a lead on it, and so its tail flops and, and, and does things. But that, that's not what goes on in regeneration. What happens in regeneration is a new nature is imparted. So a whole new set of attributes, a new self, as it's Paul frequently calls it, right, in, the, in, the, in his epistles. It's the new man or the new self that is imparted here. A set of attributes, including new thoughts, new inclinations, new affections, in which God himself plays a participatory role. And that's that perhaps is a strong way of putting it, but I think we can demonstrate that. Let's look at the texts here that talk about this idea of regeneration. Ezekiel 36, 26 speaks of regeneration this way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. That's a parallel way of speaking of regeneration. A new new self, a new heart, a new spirit. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. So that you will walk in my statutes and will be careful to observe my ordinances. Okay? So in order for someone to be an obedient person to be a faithful person, to exercise faith in Jesus Christ, he has to have the new heart, because the old heart cannot please God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, the man without the spirit, okay, the unregenerate man, the unre- uh, he does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned or spiritually appraised 
So it's not as though that person can't understand the words of the scripture. He can. But he routinely and uniformly looks at these words and says, these are foolishness. He cannot make the proper appraisal of these words. That these are the words of God to which I must submit. Rather, he looks at these and says, this is silly. It's foolish. And that's the routine response of the man without the spirit. But the spiritual man, called here the pneumatikos, you see the pneuma, or the regenerate man, makes judgments about all things, makes correct judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. And so there's the description of what regeneration is. It is the replacement of that old mind that is that is bent against God, and it replaces it here with what is described here as the mind of Christ. I think like Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a union with Christ. I, can, I can't use anything but somewhat mystical terms to describe this idea that we have been united with Christ on such a basic level that it can be said that we have the mind of Christ, that we think like Christ, we think as Christ, we are able to respond as Christ would. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. And then 2 Peter 1, here's the uh, uh, rather edgy statement I made earlier, and I do so because of the language here in 2 Peter 1. Regeneration is described here as a participation in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. It's a, it's a powerful way of speaking to it, and I think sometimes we, we sort of shrink back from that kind of language. It seems a bit too mystical for us. Nonetheless, it's there, and I think it's something we have to grapple with, that we are in some sense participating in the life of Christ. We are united with Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We are participating in the divine nature with the result, then, that we think, act, believe like Jesus Christ. And we could look elsewhere in the uh, New Testament epistles for Paul's uh, multiplied descriptions of regeneration as the removal of the old self and the receipt of the new self. Okay, so that's what regeneration is. And it's uniformly described in Scripture as a work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, questions on the nature of regeneration, the idea of regeneration? I just want to mm -hmm. clarify one thing, and I'm sure it's right yeah. uh, my thinking. Uh, when you say born of water, you're talking about the natural birth, right? <sighs> There's debate about that one. It, 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 it may be that. Uh, I, I'm inclined to think that both of these are references here to regeneration, that you are born of the water metaphor is used of the spirit as well. So I, I, I'm inclined to think that both of these are reference to regeneration. Although there are some who would say you have to be born physically and then you have to be born spiritually. It's, it seems like an odd thing to say. Okay, how do you, how do you, what do you need to do in order to be right with God? Well, you have to be born. Right. And then you have to be born again. Well, it seems like an odd thing to say. So I'm inclined to think that both of these are born of the water, born of water, and of the spirit are both references to 
uh, the act but of regeneration. You don't have to be baptized in order to be. No, I would not see that as a reference to baptism. Okay, because no. I know a lot of people Some do. Some do, yes. Okay, yeah. I just want I want to make sure we were on the same. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's <clears throat> a good article about that if you really want to look at it. Dr. McCabe, Bob McCabe, wrote an article in the Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal a long time ago now, probably about 15 years ago, on that very topic. So if you really want to dig into it, I can How send would it I find that? It's on it's on our uh, it's on our web page. Um, what was his name? Uh, Bob McCabe, Robert McCabe. McCabe, M-C-C-A-B-E. Correct. Okay, so that's what regeneration is. Let's talk specifically about regeneration in the Old Testament. It's actually an interesting topic here because some actually have denied that there is regeneration in the Old Testament. I think it's a foolish idea, but I think we need to address it because they come from within the dispensational community. So let's talk about this. Since there is no Hebrew word for regeneration like there is in Greek, some early dispensationalists argued that regeneration did not occur in the Old Testament administration, the Old Testament dispensation, or at best that no positive declaration can be made about it. We don't know if it happened or not. Schaefer adds that it cannot be demonstrated that Old Testament saints enjoyed impartation of the divine nature or actual sonship. Other reasons that he concludes this way is the idea that being in Christ is a New Testament phenomenon. You can't be in Christ in the Old Testament because nobody knows who he is. Or, secondly, that regeneration is described in the Old Testament as a benefit of the New Covenant, which had not yet begun. But there are several reasons to think that this is a mistake. Okay, We do find regeneration in the Old Testament. Now, while there are no Hebrew words for regeneration, there are several Hebrew idioms or expressions for regeneration that are commonplace. We find, for instance, the circumcised heart. It's actually an odd metaphor there, but it's uh, uniformly and routinely used here of someone whose heart has been changed to accept the things of God. We also read about the new heart and the new spirit, the heart of flesh. Zephaniah 3 speaks about a pure lip, which perhaps we'd look at and say, that's a weird idiom. Uh, but uh, it, is, uh, it is something, you know, we, we talk about, you know, and you say to your wife, I love you with all of my heart, and we all know that that's an idiom for all of my being, right? Uh, but in Hebrew, uh, to love with one's lip was a body part that was used to convey the same idea. Uh, remember when Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, uh, was before the throne of God, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, the glory filling the temple, and he understands that he's ruined. He, 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 I'm a dead man. I've seen God. I've been in the abode of God. I've seen God, and I'm not fit to be here. I'm I'm going to die. And what does the angel do? Well, he takes a, takes the tongs, right? Takes a coal off of the uh, altar there, and and does what? Touches his lips, and says, "Now you are cleansed." Okay. So, the, I, 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 as I understand it, that's his regeneration. Uh, that's his re- re- regeneration event for Isaiah at, on, at this moment. 
he is cleansed. And so he's regenerated and made fit uh, to stand before God. Uh, but you can see that same metaphor here is used of, 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 of regeneration. So the pure lip is described in Zephaniah 3 as the whole nation of Israel in the, in the end times who are uniformly going to get this pure lip so that they will serve me from shoulder to shoulder. Okay? So we have <coughs> very much uh, expressions of regeneration in the Old Testament, even though the word per se, is not used. Jesus, of course, chides Nicodemus because he doesn't understand the true nature of regeneration. Remember the story comes to Jesus by night and and, uh, secretively asks, what is it that I need to do in order to be saved? How can I be be right with God? And Jesus says very simply, you need to be born again. Okay, and this, this word born again can be translated born from above. Same, same Greek word would, could mean either of those. And uh, so Nicodemus takes it as the born again. And he says, that's, that's kind of a weird thing to say. And he actually asks the question, what am I supposed to climb back into my mother and be born again? And what does Jesus say? No, silly. Okay, You need to be born from above. You have to experience the new birth. Are you the teacher of Israel? It's not just a teacher of Israel. The teacher of Israel. The the foremost teacher in Israel. And you don't know about regeneration? Is Jesus' response to him. Okay? So Jesus' incredulity stems from the fact that Nicodemus, as the foremost teacher of Israel, should have known all about regeneration from the Old Testament revelation he had. Didn't. Okay, so uh, it's very clear that uh, regeneration was something that was experienced and known from the Old Testament. We also need to add further that it's dubious to automatically, this is a little bit of a heady one here, but let's, let's put it through anyway, to automatically interpret provincial silence about a given matter in Scripture as theological absence. Okay, so for instance... Just because we don't read about the Trinity in the Old Testament doesn't mean that God wasn't Trinity in the Old Testament. Just because we don't read about regeneration in the Old Testament as much as some might want to see it there doesn't mean it was absent. I think that's a dubious practice to to argue from silence to absence. Okay, We must surely make room for progress of revelation. Uh, but the uh, the analogy of faith, that is, uh, the comparison of Scripture with Scripture, must be considered in matters of theology such as these. Specifically, in this instance, is the fact that denying regeneration in the Old Testament betrays a fundamental misunderstanding, both of depravity and of the nature of regeneration. In order for someone to be saved, there has to be regeneration. There cannot be salvation apart from it. Let's see if I can see if we can can't make this case here. Number one, since persons always act in accordance with the dominant impulse of their affections, you know, and Jeremiah thirteen twenty three is that that question that's asked: Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin, or can a leopard change his spots? 
was politically incorrect questions here, but you know, can a black person become a white person? Not unless he's Michael Jackson, but no, <laughs> a black person cannot become a white person. Can a can a can a leopard get up one morning and say, you know, I don't like these spots anymore. I think I'm going to go with stripes today. No, why not? Because it's their nature. They, they they don't have a choice. And so what's 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 the punchline then in, in Jeremiah thirteen twenty three? Neither can you, who are accustomed to sin, do anything else. Okay. So it is by, by our very nature we cannot do anything other than sin. So the old self is totally corrupt. It's incapable of pleasing God. Uh, Romans Romans eight says this. He, uh, he, he's incapable of pleasing God. He cannot understand. He cannot embrace the things of the Spirit of God. We've looked at these verses already, and so therefore, in order for someone to be right with God, the old self needs to be exchanged for the new self in order to successfully move towards God in faith and holiness, irrespective of what age someone lives in. To suggest that Old Testament faith may exist apart from regeneration is to grossly underestimate the power of sin, firstly, or to propose two ways of salvation, and neither one works for us. Okay, How is it that David became a man after God's own heart? The miracle of regeneration. Nothing else. So how would election tie in with that if... Israel was the elect of God. Okay. All of Israel's not saved. No. Well, there, there, there's, a, there's a corporate election. God chose the nation. But remember, if you if you go to Romans nine, uh, yeah, Romans nine, first few verses, uh, Paul is speaking of. But not all Israel is Israel. I mean, the, the the idea not everyone who is a an Israelite by birth is part of the Israel of God. Because Paul, Paul Israel. kept the law better than anyone. Right. But we would say he was not regenerate. Right. Which is so commentary. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 there is an elect nation that this nation, Israel, was specifically selected among all the nations of the world to be God's people. Doesn't mean they were all God's people. They weren't they yeah, they weren't all believers. Because there is an Israel of God. Not all Israel is Israel. There's an Israel within this. I mean, we can, you know. So this is all Israel that is ethnic Israel. But not all Israel is Israel. There's there's an Israel within ethnic Israel that is believing Israel. But, of course, the conclusion of that that whole passage is what? That God has not forgotten his promise to the whole of the nation. And, at the end... And the time of all Israel, the whole group will be saved, at least those living at that time. So, which is hard to understand too. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that that it would happen, but that's the promise. Okay. So, how are people saved in the Old Testament? Well, same way they are in the New Testament. Their sin has to be overcome. And how is their sin overcome? Their sin nature has to be replaced with the new nature, the spirit, uh, they, uh, this, and become the spirit man. And so we, we find this kind of language used in the Old Testament. 
Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them, so that they would fear me and keep all my commandments. Okay, so Moses recognizes that there is this idea of regeneration out there, and he wishes that all of them had it. He said, oh, that they would have this heart, this new heart in them, so that they would fear me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 36, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may exercise faith, may love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and consequently then live, live forever, have eternal life. Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, I will give them one heart, Put, them in, put a new spirit in them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give it to the, them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And there's this passage here again in Zephaniah 3. I will give all of the peoples purified lips so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him from shoulder to shoulder. So uh, in both Testaments, old and new, in order for someone to exercise faith and then to live faithfully, he must first have the new heart. The new heart is necessary uh, to the life of faith. Secondly, since regeneration and its fruits are properly seen as benefits of union with Christ, or participation in the divine nature, if we use the language of Second Peter, it's impossible to substitute regeneration for regeneration some lesser or temporary work. Irrespective of whether we see the language of regeneration in the Old Testament, regeneration is emphatically necessary in the, New Te- in the Old Testament on theological grounds. Our people able to act in faith and to live faithfully in the Old Testament. Very simply, they have regeneration. There is no other theological category that works. Only regeneration can do that work. Then, letter D, we also note that the Old Testament tends to stress in its pages here the evidences of salvation rather than the salvation event. Uh, We tend to put a great deal of stock in the the salvation event, and we rightly understand regeneration to occur as an event, but as probably all of, many of you could testify, if you were to give your testimony, you would say, you know, I'm not exactly sure when that happened, right? It's not as though there's some sort of light that starts flashing that lets people know that it happened. And so you you, you look at the book of 1 John that's given to us to to know what? To know whether we've been born of God. And and what are all the the ways that we know that we've been born of God? Obey his commandments, commandments, love the brethren. um, I'm sorry? Love for sound doctrine. Love for sound doctrine. uh, And an abhorrence of sin and a refusal to continue in uh, unchecked in sin. And so so all of these are the results of regeneration. So that's John's answer to the question. How do you know you've been born of God? You act like someone who has been born of God. And as you look through the Old Testament, you find a great deal of emphasis on the results of regeneration 
rather than the event of regenerate. It doesn't mean there wasn't an event any more than there wasn't an event when you got saved. Nonetheless, sometimes you can't you can't pinpoint the event, but uh, the Old Testament particularly emphasizes the results, the evidences of regeneration. So, Micah 6.8, What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Okay, how do I know whether I'm regenerated? Well, I do these things. Isaiah 1, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And all of these things are evidences of the fact that, yes, you've been born again. Daniel 4.27, break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Okay, These things are the kinds, very kinds of things that only regenerate persons can do. And so we could add to these all instances of genuine prayer, praise, worship, deeds of righteousness, fellowship with God, especially as we read through the Psalms. I mean, it's impossible for the Psalms to be written by someone who is unregenerate. All of these require a new nature for their performance. Now, in response to specific objections to regeneration in the Old Testament, we can also note, too, that while Old Testament saints were not fully aware of the fact and implications of their union with Christ. I mean, they didn't know who Christ was, and so they wouldn't have spoken in that kind of language. And were not united with him in the narrow sense of being participants in the church. It's impossible to withhold from them the experience of union with Christ for redemption without also being guilty of advocating two ways of salvation. Okay? You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. Those are the two options. And that's true whether you're in the Old Testament or whether you're in the New Testament, right? Uh, so th- those are the two options, and that, that those were the two options in the Old Testament as well. You're either in Adam and totally depraved, or you're in Christ and you have been received uh, the new nature. There really is no, there's no third alternative uh, that we can credibly hold to. And then finally, while regeneration is, it, it, while gen- regeneration is prominent in the benefits of the new covenant, what is new is not the fact of regeneration, but its universality. So if you look through the promises of the new covenant, you see routinely, I'm going to regenerate all of them. They're all going to serve me from shoulder to shoulder. All Israel will be saved. And so, and so, so, and so some have said, aha, you know, regeneration doesn't happen until the new covenant. Uh, but the point of the new covenant is not that regeneration is new. Uh, but that its universality among the people of God is the, the uniqueness of the new covenant. Okay? So, regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, and that's the last point there. And the Holy Spirit, sometimes described generally as an act of God, uh, we find here that it is routinely credited to the Spirit. I will put my Spirit within you, you will be born of water and of the Spirit. And so, uh, this work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is uh, is the the primary act of the Holy Spirit relative to believers in the world, and is true in in every dispensation. Questions on regeneration as work of the Spirit. So, at the resurrection, are Old Testament saints resurrected the same? Uh, yeah, the, the, now that that takes place at the 
at the at the close of the uh, of the tribulation. So they they they're not. Yeah, yeah, because you know remember remember First Corinthians First Corinthians fifteen, for Christ the first fruits, then those who are His at His coming, then comes the end. And the and the end is where the closest thing we can come to a general resurrection, uh, but there there seems to be phases or stages in the uh, resurrection. And of course, Daniel is told that he's going to close up the book until the end, after, after all these things come to be, and then you'll and then he would rise. So it seems seems like the uh, Old Testament saints uh, have their resurrection at the close of the tribulation. Did I see a question back here? Without measure and the apostles were filled, are these measurements similar? I don't know. Like I say, I'm not I'm, I'm not completely sure what it means for the for Christ to receive the Holy Spirit without measure. It could mean without limit, it could be without resistance, or it could mean the the the, the full powers of the Holy Spirit uh, are given to him where only you know narrow manifestations of the Holy Spirit are given to each of us in our ministry in the church. So, so I'm not even sure exactly what the, the 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 giving of the Spirit without measure is, but it seems to be something unique to Christ. And the apostles were different than the typical believer of the day. Correct. They would probably be more on in, in the same category as, as the prophets. That's why we put them together. The Holy Spirit would come upon them in a way that he does not come upon ordinary believers. They have the gifts of the apostle, um, which are different than, they're, they're unique. So. Other thoughts? Okay, well our time is gone, so we'll come back here next week and pick up here with the work of the Spirit and indwelling.